Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. You know, I, I hesitate to make this claim, but I do actually think it's a uniquely human thing. You know, a, a dolphin isn't sitting there thinking about the infrared sense of a rattlesnake. A rattlesnake isn't like musing about the echolocation of a bat. A bat's not thinking about what my dog sniffs on the street. I get to think about all of that. And that's, it, that to me, it feels like a gift to me to be able to, to sort of move past the the biological limits of my own senses to think about what other animals are experiencing and and in part like the argument of the book is that's actually a very magical and deeply human ability that we shouldn't squander i'm jordan kissner author of the essay collection thin places and this is thresholds a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Hey everyone, it's officially spring. The crocuses are pushing up here in Brooklyn, and we are in a springy mood. And today we are kicking off a series of interviews that explore our relationships to the world around us. No better person to start with than Ed Yong, a staff writer at The Atlantic and a prolific science writer and reporter. His first book, I Contain Multitudes, was about the world of microbes and the fact that our bodies are teeming with millions and millions of these little organisms that most of us don't know anything about. He interrupted work on his second book to report on the COVID pandemic, really, really incredible work for which he won a Pulitzer Prize. And now he's getting ready to release that second book. It's titled An Immense World. And it's about the way that animals perceive the world and what we can learn from those perceptions. I found it a really joyous read, uh, really just a delight from front to back. And I've noticed myself looking around at my environment and especially at my dog kind of differently since finishing it. Ed came on to talk about the driving curiosities behind his work and about the dog that turned his life upside down while he was writing this book, his corgi named Typo. In January of 2021, um, I got a pandemic puppy. Um, He is a corgi. Um, His name is Typo, um, which is, um, you know, 
a very obvious journalist uh, journalist dog name. Um, he's uh, he's typo for short, and he's typography when he's being bad. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we we got him in January. Um, about so that was nine months into reporting about the pandemic. Um, it was um, at the start of the second phase of my book leave when I was writing um, An Immense World, this book about the sensory experiences of other animals. Um, it, I had never had a pet before. Um, so Typo was not only my first dog, but the first animal I, I really had in my first non-human animal I really had in my life. Um, uh, and yeah, it was a um, it was a gigantic leap into the unknown at a time when we had already made quite substantial leaps into the unknown. My wife Liz and I have been talking about um, maybe getting a dog for a long time. Um, she had um, she had two corgis um, in a past life, um, and and was really missing having animals around. Um, I. Uh, I, as I said, had had never had pets before, um, but was sort of intrigued by it. Um, and it, you know, I, I think I recognised the um, the hole in in Liz's life that was um, that existed because of the lack of an animal around. Um, and it, you know, it, and it felt like um, an interesting adventure. Now, in, in hindsight. Um, was it the best idea to try and raise a puppy after nine months of harrowing reporting when I had half a book to write? It may not have been the smartest decision I ever made, but um, but you know I I have no regrets now, and I love the kid, and he's he's a delightful bundle of joy. But it was I, I may not I would probably not recommend to other people to to execute exactly that timing. So what happened when you brought him home? Um, uh, he was, um, so on the first night, um, I think the first night summarized like sort of what the, the, the first months of, of raising a puppy were like, um, in that, he uh, smelled really bad. Um, <laughs> he he basically slept on my pillow, so I was sort of forced down to like in a sort of crunched up position at the, the bottom half of the bed. Um, and then the first thing he did when he woke up in the morning was pee on the bed. <gasps> oh that, no! That said, um, he also did this immensely cute thing when he was very very tiny when his where like his snores sounded like lasers um they sounded like a little like just tiny little lasers firing out of his nostrils um and it was it was deeply adorable um so that that like tension of um intense aggravation and also like uh like deep adoration was um was very much like the hallmark of those first few months I mean, uh, my next question was going to be how did how did typo change your life? But it sounds like that was a that was a pretty abrupt, <laughs> a pretty abrupt and immediate change. How did yeah. it uh, unfold? Um. So, you know, the um, I think raising <laughs> raising a puppy is hard. It was harder than I anticipated and and probably it was harder for me than for Liz because she had experience with with dogs before and and I did not so you know there are um getting used to things like the biting puppy teeth are really sharp uh the barking is very loud like all, all of these things that I think were unfamiliar to me as a like dog naive person uh and took um a lot of getting used to the uh, I mean, one one um one lovely intersection between that and the rest of my life was that, um, you know, I had been writing this book about how other animals perceive the world um, and the very different ways in which they sense the world to us. 
and and just having um a dog in my home um really brought those differences to um to light in a very personal way um you know it's sort of one thing to write about it in the abstract and another to really see it um at at work um you know in in right in front of you um i had i'd actually written um the chapter on smell um that was the first chapter of the book that i'd written and the first section of that chapter the first scene was about dogs and the way they smell the world so that was actually the first thing i wrote for the book um and you know i talked to uh, a um scientist and wonderful writer named alexander horowitz um who studies and thinks about the ways in which dogs smell the world um you know she she writes beautifully about how dogs live in this this um olfactory landscape um that that smell is so primary to them as as a sense um and in ways that um humans often don't take into consideration she told me um about how she takes her dogs specifically on sniff walks um to allow them the chance to explore the world with their noses at their own pace so, you know a lot of dog owners walk their dogs to a specific destination you know you're hurrying the dog along you're pulling the dog along if the dog stops to sniff something you're pulling the dog away and um Alexandra's view was that this is sort of denying dog um one of its primary means of experiencing the world um and so from from the start we tried to do that with typer we tried to let him um you know at least once a day um if not more have um control over like his outdoor experience so we're not going to a specific place we're just walking around he dictates the pace of it if he wants to stop and sniff he gets to stop and sniff um and and that's been a sort of wonderfully enriching experience i think it, it was um it allowed us to um really get a sense of things um through his nose um you know we it, it it's 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 still um wonderful and amazing to me when we when we walk along just a random stretch of um of sidewalk and um you know he'll be trundling along happily and then just grind to a screeching halt and start investigating a part a part of the um a part of the pavement that you know looks looks like every other um part of the pavement it, it you know visually there's nothing there that, you know, to to us like olfactorily there's nothing there and yet there's something that has just grabbed his attention so hard um that you know he his mind has dropped everything else and it's wonderful watching him um you know sniff other dogs um at our dog the dog park we go to it's wonderful watching him um explore with his nose with this just extraordinary delicacy you know he he explores like if you watch closely like he'll he'll sniff out like every leaf on a plant you know he'll he'll sniff like along a twig um he'll sniff at like edges uh, and boundaries where air flows between one space or another um and uh he there's clearly this like landscape around the world that he is privy to and that I am not and that just watching him behave and engage with the world um it shows me that there's like that there is um like wander in the everyday and um unfamiliar in the mundane and that's also what an immense world is about it's about like trying to to show people that there is this um <laughs> immense world this greater um this sort of you know greater majesty to nature that that we're aware of and i think typo shows me that like every day so you're saying you were already at work on this book um before you got typo what had drawn you to this as your as your book idea clearly it was something you were interested in before you had it this this beautiful example of it in your house making laser snores <laughs> um uh yeah so i had been um writing about lots of different biological topics uh for many years um and 
I had written about um, the senses of other animals uh, for a long time, you know, not as a like singular obsession, but as just part of the the body of work I produced. Um, and but I'm not sure I would have um, actually thought to write a book about it were it not for um, a specific conversation that I had with um, Liz, my, my wife. Um, I think it was at the end of um, 2018. Um, so we were in a, we were in a London cafe. Um, it was rainy outside. It was cold. Um, it was in the winter. In the winter, I tend to get um, kind of morose and self-flagellating and so like as as is fairly normal i was um bemoaning to liz that uh like <laughs> my career had peaked i was out of ideas like well the well of inspiration had run dry uh you know i had uh, nothing left to offer and uh, especially had no ideas specifically for a second book um and that i wasn't sure what like all these years of writing about um you know weird animal behavior uh was was sort of amounting to when there were like big pressing societal problems at foot around us um and uh liz very patiently listened to me and then pointed out um and and then gave this like beautiful speech about um why it still matters um, to think about the natural world and to show people what it actually is like, the full, um, the full extent of it. Um, and you know, she she talked. Liz actually um, works in science communication now, but started off as a marine biologist, and she studied the visual systems, uh, the the the, um, the the ways in which reef fish, um, coral reef fish, perceive colors. Um, and she was talking about um, you know, the senses of animals as, as one of these examples of how um, uh, tuning into um, the fullness of nature like enriches our own experiences and why that kind of work matters. And basically said, you should write a book about that. And Liz is incredibly wise, and I try and listen to her whenever I can. So I did. Um, and and she was right. Um, she She's usually right um the the um i do think that um i do think that this this matters um you know i, I think that at, especially at a time when um so much um of the natural world is imperiled um it does make it does matter to tell people um you know just how exquisite and how vast it is um even the parts of it that we we think are familiar you know i've sort of made this argument already and i i, I make it throughout the book that um the sensory worlds of other animals are worth knowing about for their own sake because they show us how broad our own world and how you know how how broad the world around us really is and how limited our experience of it really is like this book is a, a um you know a call to a sort of radical form of empathy like to to really try and step outside our shoes and to to um think about the experiences of um creatures that are very different to us and i think that there is tremendous value and, and purpose in that Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. that particular frame came about this concept of forgive me if i botched the pronunciation here of umwelt yes of uh <laughs> could you uh exp you'll explain better than i will what what that is and i'm curious why that this idea which you're talking about what became the central idea this this idea of radical empathy of understanding 
the other experience of the world. Right. So um, the, 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 the Umwelt concept is that um, there is a huge amount of information out there, stimuli of like sights and sounds and you know, textures and, um, and smells um, that, uh, that a creature could conceivably perceive, but that every um, animal, every species, arguably every individual is only really tapping into a small sliver of that, 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 you know, that it's only getting a very thin slice of that full sensory experience. Um, and that's the umbelt. So, you know, the, the umbelt of a, you know, my umbelt involves, uh, you know, the, the visible spectrum, uh, from red to violet, uh, a, the the umvelt of um, the pigeons sitting outside my window um, extend beyond that into the ultraviolet. Um, you know the the um, typo's umvelt um, is narrower. Um, he sees a few a smaller range of colours than I do, but his umvelt also includes a wider range of smells than I do. Um, you know what he hear he hears sounds at, at, um, at a different range of frequencies. Um, so. It's the the idea is that um, we each tap into a small and distinct slice of the total amount of information out there, um, which means that um, and you know this is the the first scene in the book. Like you could imagine yourself in a space with a lot of different creatures, like an elephant, rattlesnake, a, a robin, a spider, um, and you would all be in the same physical space, but you would have radically different experiences of that space. Um, and you know, I, I think that that's the that's the central concept of the book because everything else flows from there like exploring to explore those sensory worlds to talk about what other animals are experiencing and and feeling and and sensing you know requires you to understand that those differences exist and and i think we we forget that sometimes you know part of the Part of the reason why, for example, like dog owners pull their dogs away from like sniffing stuff or, or, you know, think that like sniffing other dogs is gross is because we're mapping this human sensorium, this, this human umbelt onto that of the creatures around us. And we're, we're doing that misguidedly because we sort of assume that they have the same sensory worlds as we do. Um, like, I think exploring those sensory worlds is for a start, like extremely cool. Um, you know, it is fascinating to me to think about um, fish that can sense electric fields, um, you know, migratory birds that can sense the magnetic field of the earth. Um, it's amazing to me to think about um, the, you know, an, an albatross flying over a featureless ocean, but being able to like perceive this landscape of smells that are rising from the sea and finding food or home in that way. It's amazing to think about, um, uh, you know, a, a bird, like a, a pigeon or a starling, um, you know, something really familiar. Uh, and the idea that it could um, sense an order of magnitude more colors than we do, that there are entire colors that we can, you know, we, we, we wouldn't even have a name for and, and can't perceive that, um, uh, that these creatures around us are sort of tapping into all the time. Uh, you know, I think that's, you know, at, 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 at the very least, that's really fascinating. But I think there's also something like, deeper and more profound here. Um, the, um, the reason why umbelts exist at all is that, um, firstly, no organism can conceivably tap into all the information there is to perceive. Um, you know, you, you would need like an infinitely large nervous system. Nervous systems cost energy to run. You know, you can only fuel so much, um, cognitive power, um, because we're limited by the amount of energy we can take in. So, um, there are, there are sort of biological limits. Um, but we're also limited by like evolutionary necessity. Like each organism perceives the umwelt that it gets because that's what it needs to perceive. You know, I, I don't, I am not walking around needing to, um, sense the ultrasonic frequencies that a bat or a dolphin can hear. And so I don't, um, you know, so our, our history, our ancestry, um, constrains us to this very thin sector of the world. And, which means that it's 
must be an active choice to learn about the rest. Um, and, and that to me is a, like a deeply, um, a, a kind of deeply magical and, and profound idea that, um, you know, that our, our like billions of years of uh, history have left us um, with this narrow view of the world that is well suited to our needs. But we get to, we we can choose to go beyond that. We can choose to um, to to transcend our own limits um, and to think about parts of the um, experience available to us that, that we don't normally tap into. And that's a you know I I hesitate to make this claim, but I do actually think it's a uniquely human thing. You know, a, a dolphin isn't sitting there thinking about the infrared sense of a rattlesnake. A rattlesnake isn't like musing about the echolocation of a bat. A bat's not thinking about what my dog sniffs on the street. I get to think about all of that. I get to know about all of that, um, and that's it, that to me. It feels like a gift to me to be able to to sort of move past. The, the biological limits of my own senses to think about what other animals are experiencing. And, and in part, like the argument of the book is that's actually a very magical and deeply human ability that we shouldn't squander. Yeah. I, I really felt, uh, I really felt the, the coolness you're describing. Like it's just so immensely cool knowing, right. knowing these things about other species and and that there is a that there is something special about our ability to inquire, to find out, and then to imagine all these these different umwelts. Um, to go back to to typo for a second, how did I mean? I I you have told me how he changed your sleep. How did he change and be? How did he change the book as you as you learned to live with this other umwelt in your house? Mm, yeah. Um, well, uh, at, at a very, um, at a very basic level, he provided some, um, some much needed transitions between a few chapters that were sort of sitting next to each other without like any cork between them. Um, and, uh, it, it turned out one very easy way of solving that problem is to reach for whatever your dog is doing and slide it into the book. So he's, <laughs> he's there. Um, weirdly, he's not actually in the bit about dogs and smelling at all. He's, he's there, um, in a couple of places. Um, he's, he's in, um, he's in a section on vision where I think about the, the types of colors that he senses. Um, he's in, uh, I think the, uh, the chapter on vibrations where I talk about how, you know, as a puppy, um, I, I spent a lot of time sitting on the floor of my, um, of my flat playing with him, um, which is not a place that I really spent much time at all before. And, and suddenly like, you know, you, you, you sit on the ground and you're some, you, you know, you're much more aware of like, cars driving past um you know the like footsteps from from the neighbors below um it, it it was a um it was a good reminder that um you know just by just by by dint of lowering yourself a few feet um you can tap into this um th- this different sensory experience and what you're used to um so yeah, like so. Type is there in the books. He makes he makes several cameos. Um, he's he also the 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 planning for the book was well underway before we got him, um, and it, a lot of that didn't change. You know, the, the book was half written; it was fully structured. But I think he, I think to me, he he was a personal. Um, exem- he was a personal reminder, like a, just a beautiful exemplar of all the themes that um, that I had been writing about the, in the book. Like he made the the ideas in the book more real to me, and I think the ideas in the book made him more real to me. I also have a dog, and got her when she was I don't know six months old, and the adjustment that you have to make to this new creature living in your house that that has experiences uh and rationales that are completely anathema and confusing to you there is like such an adjustment that has to be made yeah. um and i've only ever 
lived with dogs. I've never had cats or lizards mm-hmm. or anything else. And I imagine they have their own, of course they have their own things. Um, but the it, it feels almost like a neurological adjustment you make to mm-hmm. accommodate this new uh, this new creature, this new part of your of your home life, um, who you're now sort of partnered with in a way, and it it sounds like it must be so cool to get to do that while you're researching this the science of not just how other animals experience the world, but how we can come to understand that about them. Yeah, it it, it was. Um, you know, I, I think like I I found. Um, I found the early months of puppy parenting difficult. Like I was already in a, in a very um, uh, stressful. I was in a very um, burned out place, um, and you know, this like uh, adding lack of sleep and and all, all the sort of unfamiliarity of, of owning a pet for the first time on top of that was was challenging. Um, but I think you know I I, I sort of hope that um, thinking about this topic and writing about the book made me a, a, a better puppy parent than I would have been otherwise because i think it it does force you to think about to to really grapple with the idea that like you know you you've not it's not like you've just brought a furry human into your house right you brought this completely different creature that that not only has like a different cognition you know i think we, we we're sort of used to the idea that um that that animals think in different ways than we do, but but really has just a, is just so fundamentally different in his in his perception of the world um, that um, you, you you know you you have to take that into account um, when when interacting with him. Like um, I think one of the hardest things to to learn when you do this for the first time is to to not sort of map human expectations onto the animal to to like. To, um, to to think about his behavior and his needs through um, through what he is um, and and through how he experiences the world. Um, so yeah, it, um, you know, I talked about this this um, how this kind of radical empathy is um, is part is core to the book, and I've tried to internalize that um, you know as the as the custodian of this delightful. Um, Goofus. <laughs> can you well, give me? In charge of. Yeah. Can you give me an example of just a thing that you were maybe first inclined to see through the lens of your own human framework and came to understand differently as you came to understand his his mind better? Um. Yes. <laughs> I mean, this is sort of a dumb example, but but like he so, um, like I've had um, I've I've like experienced other like I've I've been around other dogs before. I've been around like friend dogs from of like I've been around friends and family members' dogs. Um, and a lot of the dogs that I, I'm used to are like kind of snuggly, right? Like they 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 um they curl up next to you on a sofa and they put their head on your lap and it's it's a wonderful experience um typo is not that right he's a high energy dog he's like corgis are a herding breed he wants jobs to do and he likes like you know getting into shenanigans um when he's bored and like i think one specific way this this manifests is it like if i'm like if i'm feeling very low um which to be honest i have been a lot trying to report on the pandemic for a couple of years um what i really want is for my dog to come and snuggle me and you know be like this emotional support animal but that's not really who he is it's not how he's wired so like if i feel really low typo will come up and want like want to play like he'll want to he'll want to tug or you know he'll want to run around um at one at one point last year i was literally sitting at the edge of the sofa like with my head in my hands um in like you know this doldrum of despair and typo's reaction to that was to jump at my face (laughs) (laughs) you know which i sort of interpret now as like um I, I don't know, like, you know, it, it, 
at the risk of grossly anthropomorphizing my dog, but why not? Um, like, it, I, I sort of think of that as, oh, dad, you're feeling down. Um, you know, like, when I feel down, it really helps me to, you know, to play tug or to like, to, to romp around. Like that's sort of, I think that's, that's how, um. Right. Let's do joy well, stuff. <laughs> let's do joy stuff. Right. Like I, I think, I think his bond, like his, his like means of, um, of showing affection is to do exactly that, which is, which is really not what I, what I need in that moment. But, um, you know, that, but, I think it's, it really, it helps to, it, like, that only clicked in, like, quite late. Um, and I think it really helped to, to sort of understand why there is that discrepancy um, there. And this, that's not like an umwelt stuff, an, an umwelt thing, but um, it does flow from this idea of trying to think about, like, how, how the dog is wired um, rather than, like, what I need. Okay, let's let's get into burnout and workload if we can a little bit. <laughs> right, sure. This as you are saying is I mean it's just a huge amount of research and reporting and I, when I was reading it, like I, I said to you sort of before we got into this, I was just astounded that this was something you had done on top of the really kind of relentless pace of excellent and in fact, Pulitzer Prize winning reporting you were doing on the pandemic. Uh, how, how did, how did that work? How did you, how did you do that? Uh, it how sounds like it was, it sounds like it was really hard. Um. Yes, uh, it it was really hard. Um, I sometimes, you know, <laughs> yeah. So, um, wh- one answer is that um, actually the bulk of the the book work was done before the pandemic even started. So, you know, I, I had done a lot of reporting trips in twenty nineteen. I I'd fully structured the book. I, I knew what like at least what like the the major themes in the chapters were. I had written. Um, half of the book before I, um, decided to, uh, before, um, both my, my wife again, being very wise and the Atlantic suggested that I should maybe come back and report on this here pandemic. That seemed like a big thing. Um, so, you know, when I, when I, um, when in the, in the period when the pandemic was actually happening, um, I only had half a book to write and I took four months off at the start of 2021 to finish that, that period. That's also when we, we got typo. Um, I, <laughs> I joked at the time that um, it says a lot about what covering COVID is like, that the prospect of taking time off to write a book, half a book in four months felt like, you know, going to a spa. Um, <laughs> it's, Perhaps the only thing that could make book writing, you know, uh, feel like a restorative activity. Book writing, a famously rejuvenating thing for <laughs> for writers to do, um, <sighs> you know, and and yet that it 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 really did feel like that at the time. I mean, it was it was a, a, a ludicrous amount of work, and it was a ludicrous amount of work, like especially given that you know every like my wife and I were taking like hour long shifts to like play with the dog. Um, like one of us would play with the dog. The other one would then get some work done merc- like mercifully every now and then he would fall asleep for about half an hour and then, you know, repeat ad infinitum. And somehow I wrote half a fucking book in that way. And it was fine. Like it was, it, the, you know, the puppy raising bit was fine. It was hard. The book writing bit actually was joyful and, um, uh, and and did feel restorative. It felt it felt great to to slip into this um, this mind space that was all about awe and wonder and joy, um, rather than the the pandemic mind space, which was the exact opposite of all of those things. Um, like it, in retrospect, um, it it it's been sort of easy to forget that there have been moments. Um, there were moments towards the end of um, 
2021 when like when i was when i was feeling incredibly burned out again where i thought i like i can't believe i feel this terrible considering i took four months off at the start of the year and then had to remember like no 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 those four months were not an actual holiday you spent that time writing a book and raising a puppy um and also, and also guest editing the best American science and nature anthology. That that was another thing that happened in that time that I sometimes forget about. Um, oh boy! Not to what, mention just being a person in the in the world this year of our Lord twenty twenty one as it was. Right. Like that was yes. all by itself a little bit of a, a stressful event for most people. Yes, that that is that is also true. I do also forget that 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 is a part of it. <laughs> so, um, what's the I'm trying to think of, I'm, I want to ask a question without it sounding like I'm teasing you. I'm asking it with like a real no, earnestness it, because I have the same, I, I have uh, a milder version of, of this personality quirk you're describing. Um, it sounds like you for, you lose your reference point for, for what, what, um, what exertion maybe feels like or what reasonable workloads could feel mm, like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, when you're far down the rabbit hole of that um, maybe I shouldn't be using animal metaphors in, in this episode but <laughs> no let's go on. We, we, we declare a, we declare an episode-wide amnesty on on inappropriate animal metaphors okay thank I, you I struggled with this while writing the book too so I sympathize and cast no aspersions on anyone else for doing so I appreciate it. Okay. So when you're, when you're pretty far gone in that state, um, how do you, how do you, how do you get done everything that you need to do? Is it just a lot of, you know, being headbutted by the corgi while you (laughs) hold your head in your hands or what, what what happens? What does it look like at your house? Right. There's a, there is, there is certainly some of that. Um, um, as as much as I am prone to be unkind to myself in terms of taking too much on, I am also pretty good about like I'm very very good about meeting deadlines. I've I've always in in some ways filing this book. Um, this book was either the was conceived. So in some ways, this book was the first deadline that I've ever missed because I took nine months off my actual book leave to finish it um to to write about the pandemic while that was happening um but like i'm i'm a reasonable good judge reasonably good judge of my time um so you know i i i do take on a lot but i but i also get that stuff done um i think over the course of the um over the course of the pandemic and especially um in the uh in the last year and a bit um i have tried to be kinder to myself in terms of what i like just the amount of work that i expect myself to to be able to churn out i think um part of the problem in the first year was just um you know running at like seventh gear constantly um because it felt like this um it felt like everything was incredibly urgent. Like every piece needed to be finished two weeks ago. Um, yeah, it was an emergency nonstop. Right, exactly. Um, and you know, I I argue that that is still the case. But I um, I think I came back to the second bout of pandemic writing, understanding that I could not sustain the same pace that I did in 2020, and that doing so would just would just wreck me um so you know i with that being said i still like i still wrote a lot of pandemic features um you know but like i'm now running in like fifth gear and as opposed to as opposed to sixth um so that helps a bit um i think that the like the challenge now is is a little different um 
the and the, the reasons why the work is is hard um is a little different i think that um uh the more that um the world at large decides that the pandemic is over which is not um and that we should move past it um the more i'm driven to try and tell the stories of the people who have been left behind in that um uh the um so you know especially in the last half year i've written a lot of pieces about healthcare workers and, and the burnout they're feeling. Um, I've written about long haulers um, who are still struggling with COVID symptoms. I've written about immunocompromised people who feel abandoned in this rush to normal. I've now, you know, I, I've written one piece and now we're going to second about people who are still grieving, who, who've lost people to COVID. Um, I think those are the stories that matter the most to me right now. I think they're the ones that will do the most good in some ways they're an instantiation of that um premise of radical empathy that that sustain that um that is central to to my book um but they're also um incredibly draining um i think it is like obviously it's not it's not worse for me than it is for any of the people i'm writing about but i think bearing witness to that much suffering um while being a, a profound and important thing we can do is also I- incredibly hard and so there's this like weird cycle now of um i know i'm burned out and i don't have a lot of like emotional bandwidth to give um so i want to use whatever reserves i have left to do the kinds of stories that will do the most good and that will be the most meaningful to people who most need it right now. Um, but those same stories are also the most, um, you know, emotionally devastating and, and mentally exhausting. Um, and so round and round we go and I don't know where, where, um, where that cycle ends, but I think it continues as long as I have energy to sustain it, um, which I, uh sort of do now um i mean i'm still doing it so clearly that wasn't uh, the most convincing version of that (laughs) sentence i've ever heard (laughs) right 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 right. Uh, I don't know who I'm trying to convince here. You, the listeners, myself, uh, but clearly I'm failing on really three out of three there. Should they be listening to this? Right. Um, No, I think it's it's reasonable and healthy to express doubts. This is a, this is what you, the work that you have been doing reporting on this pandemic is, is very, very extractive, very, very difficult. And I think it's uh, kind of important to be honest about that. Yeah. What you're talking about now with regards to your reporting on the pandemic, echoes something that I was thinking about while I was reading your book, which is that there is all this really incredible, emotional, wondrous material that's happening with the backdrop of horror and tragedy, right? Like the, this mm-hmm. book, um, An Immense World, is so full of just amazing, fascinating, joyful delights, right? And it, and it is also set against the backdrop of a mass extinction event um, yeah. that that is being wrought in the Anthropocene. Yeah. Um, and I wanted, I wanted to hear you talk about figuring out how to balance that delight and horror on the page. And maybe it sounds like figuring out how to balance that in, in your, your, I don't know, mind and self as a writer is, is an ongoing project, but how do you think about balancing that for, for a reader? Uh, that is a fantastic question. Um, so uh, from, from the very beginning, um, I knew that part of covering the sense. So if I was writing a book about the senses of other animals, I have to talk about sensory pollution about this idea that we're actually disrupting the lives of animals by flooding the world with light and with sound and with other stimuli that they're they're 
not accustomed to and that is harming them. Um, you know, it's a, it's a sort of invisible form of pollution that's um, very different to like smoke, uh, you know, toxins blowing out of a, a smokestack, but is no less pernicious and no less harmful. Um, the question of how to do that was actually uh, one that I wrestled with for, for some time. Um, and as you've seen in the book and, and as people will, will see in a few months, like the, the solution was to put a chapter at the end about this problem that you, you, I, I build up through 13 chapters of how animals sense the world, like a, a tour of all the different senses. And then it ends with this um, slight gut punch um, that says like, and because of everything you've just read, a lot of, a lot of the world is now in danger. Um, but I think it was it was really important to me to um, to not um, to not sugarcoat this. You know, we we are living through a mass extinction event. Um, the same natural history documentaries I've talked about have been criticised for you know um, providing this um, you know I don't know like this kumbaya version of nature that doesn't grapple with the fact that everything you're seeing is in quite substantial and immediate peril. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that's not only, um, an erasure of the problem, but it's a, it's the loss of an opportunity. You know, if th these, like I said, the, these, these, um, this book, these shows provide a fantastic opportunity to really show people the stakes, like what we stand to lose. And to me, like what we stand to lose is not just, uh, a species, although, also, although that would be tragic in itself, but it's an entire way of knowing the world. Um, you know, if, if every animal has its own umbelt, then the loss of every species creates a gap in the possibility of knowledge, like in the space of experience. Um, and 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 I think that's you know, it's not more tragic, but it adds a layer to to um, to what we stand to lose. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.